welcome to the Supergirl Supercast. I'm Tracy Matson, And I'm David Schaub. And today we are discussing Season 5, Episode 15, Reality Bites. Why don't you remind us and the uh, listeners what happened? Hara wears blue on her date with William and is magically good at pool. Obsidian Platinum has launched and is really dangerous. Leviathan is everywhere and is certainly not making Obsidian Platinum safer. Alex is learning to use her Martian weapon, but it's as stubborn as she is. Al's brother Trevor is missing in VR. Alex and John P.I. is working the case. Kelly does her best to help, but this product is horrible. John tracks down the VR baddie Richard in the real world, while Alex tracks him and Trevor down in VR. After having her mind mined for her greatest desires and greatest fears, she saves Trevor and stops Richard, who is somehow broken and taken away by Leviathan. Nia and the trans community is being targeted by a hate group. Yvette is tricked and horribly attacked as a message to Dreamer. Kara tries to be supportive but can't understand. Nia stops waiting for the cops and uses herself as bait to track down the hateful attacker. The attacker stupidly takes on Dreamer, and Kara talks Nia down from killing him. The cops better put him in jail. At the end, Alex finds out that her father, Jeremiah, has been found dead. Right, so several different things going on here, of course, and not all of it is stuff that's in my area of expertise, but then superpowers aren't in my area of expertise either. We'll just uh, have to do the best we can discussing this. That we will. I would definitely start this off by saying, I think this maybe should have been two episodes. We can certainly talk about the two plot lines separately as they don't connect and are so amazingly different in tone that it, it feels hard bouncing between them. Yeah, last year we had a lot of time to develop the bigotry against aliens plot line. Here, it seems like it's uh, the after school episode about trans issues, which, yay that they're addressing it, but I don't love that it's brought up and apparently resolved within one episode. If this is the only representation of it that we see, that would be unfortunate, but we'll see going forward. I still think it's better that the episode exists than it doesn't. True. Shall we deal with the ridiculous Obsidian Platinum plot first? Yes. As we have been warning, of course, Obsidian Platinum has bad consequences beyond just getting distracted from reality. It turns out that not only can it be addictive, but it's also glitchy, and those glitches can be manipulated by evildoers. This product is so bad. So, <laughs> so bad. It is so dangerous. This is like, let's take the internet and plug it into your brain. How do you feel now? <laughs> oh my, this product is bad. We'll get into it. It took my second viewing to understand the opening scene that we were actually seeing Trevor and Jennifer on a VR affair date with Richard watching on and that he was the person who had the bug happen to two months earlier, which doesn't make a lot of sense because this means this is pre-launch, but Trevor and Jennifer were already dating. The timeline is a bit strange, but yeah. Yeah. So Kelly is shocked and horrified that Richard has a hard time escaping and Kelly is, you know, she says, oh, oh my goodness, I will report this right away. And then later on, she's shocked and horrified that she was told that this 
glitch, as she called it, has not been resolved, even though someone told her that it had been. I don't know if she ever even got that feedback. This entire episode is Kelly being shocked at how bad her product is. <laughs> <laughs> but staunchly defending it, you know, okay, th there are problems, but I still believe this can be good for people, despite lack of any evidence. Well, okay, she says she's helped some people deal with their traumas via the virtual thing. And that's great, but... It obviously needed to have a whole lot more thought put into it. At the end, when Alex says, maybe there should be some regulations. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you think? <laughs> Just maybe. And they only wanted to regulate who uses it. Right. No, 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 no. This thing needs way more oversight than just who's using it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this very, very disturbing. I mean, the show wants us to be disturbed by it. Um, so, you know, the show itself is not cheerleading this, but, you know, certainly there are examples of industries and things that have been rolled out without much thought put into it and many bad unintended consequences. So, yeah, a plot line that keeps pointing out that you need to think about some of these things before they actually get put out and in wide release. That's not a bad thing. And in this case, it doesn't help that Leviathan is clearly behind the scenes trying to make this absolutely horrible in that uh, Richard experienced the bug. Presumably, Leviathan then showed him how to utilize the bug, and then they collect him afterwards. Leviathan has their dirty fingers over all of this, and that's certainly why the bug hasn't been fixed as well. So it's not entirely reasonable to suggest that Obsidian is intentionally making this product bad or is just failing to make it good. It is actively being sabotaged. Right, and probably Andrea does not realize how bad it is, or else she's shutting her eyes to the potential misuse of it, because after all, she's set to make a lot of money from it. Yeah, I don't think she actively set it up this way, but it clearly is open for manipulation built in from the ground up by Leviathan. Uh, almost certainly. We don't even see Andrea in this episode, and of course, I don't think we've seen her post-Akrata smoke cloud, mm -hmm. so uh, we'll, we'll have to see what actually is going on with her the next time we see her. Kelly does give the line later on, saying, I need to talk to Andrea about unintended uses of obsidian platinum. I'm pretty sure VR affairs and sex online, that, that is the intended use of obsidian platinum. But <laughs> you keep saying that, Kelly. Yes, well, trapping people in escape palaces and torturing them there, probably not one of the intended uses. But anyone with a modicum of imagination could have realized that it could be misused in many ways. We don't quite know how much help Richard got from Leviathan or whether he even knew he was being helped. But yeah, just the fact that the user was able to write some code that allowed Obsidian Platinum to read your worst fears and make them happen. And it's like, the mind reading of this program is so scary. Yes, yes. It's going into your head and going way beyond surface level of your thoughts to go into memories and hidden desires and stuff that would be, and fears. This is far more than just an extremely well done landscape or adventure game with choices that you project yourself into. This is uh, really going deep into people's heads. Well, and it does explain why it is such a good 
distribution mechanism for Lena in that it basically does 90% of the work already. Right. It's already for her. Mm-hmm. Right. We didn't have any Lena this episode, but it all makes clear how powerful this program is and how apt for misuse. Shocking. It is shocking. <laughs> we do get a cute scene later on. We'll, 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 we'll get there, but I'll just mention the list of Alex's deepest desires because we have medical doctor Alex, <laughs> super Alex, baby holding Alex, plaid shirt wearing Alex, beach at sunset Alex, rocket ship <laughs> Alex, and ocean waves Alex. <laughs> I think I'm missing one, but I couldn't tell what it was. But anyway, they're showing her lots of options, but she chooses the uh, because she's on a mission. She chooses Las Vegas. I really do like that they are giving us what we've been looking for for about half a season, which is John and Alex P.I. Yes. <laughs> and we're getting them to basically have a P.I. case, and one of them works the case in the real world, and the other one works it in VR. Like, a lot of setup for this plot line, I really love. Yeah, it also, you know, displays how it really is useful to have two detectives working together instead of just one person, because they can split up and do things that way. Each you know, going to a different specialty. So yeah, that was fun to watch. It was interesting where Alex finally tracked the bad guy to his virtual lair. And he says, you you can't beat me here. This is my house. And she says, and this is my gun. And her Martian gun, which has been uncooperative (laughs) quite a bit before with her sparring with Jean and and stuff, uh, cooperates and energy blasts Richard, and he goes back into the real world where Jean tracks him down and throws him into a couch. <laughs> TV. So, so yeah, that was kind of fun watching watching them go back and forth together like that. Absolutely. I, I was a little surprised. We, we can quickly cover the Alex gun plot in here because she basically gets this gun. And I, I like how it's being referenced as basically being like soldier-like hand. Uh, it's as stubborn as she is. <laughs> I really quite enjoy that she's having difficulty with her Martian DNA telepathic mighty morphing weapon. (laughs) Uh, And I really loved the uh, Ollivander wand maker reference. Yes. There being no instruction manual and uh, it being really hard to use, which really just makes me think the greatest American hero. But hey, (laughs) they they can choose which references they want. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it makes sense that a gun designed for a Martian would have trouble telepathically syncing with a human mind. But as you say, also, she's stubborn, so probably not the easiest empathetic fit. I was surprised in the last scene, they don't actually show her making some progress, because I thought that would have sort of bookended this experience as going through VR with her VR version of the weapon would have taught her a little bit and she would have made some progress, but it was actually just as hard at the end of the episode. I was was a little surprised by that, but whatever. Well, I actually kind of like that, that it's not like, oh, she goes through a VR thing and now suddenly the gun just works for her. I rather like that it would be a fitful stop and start process for her. And this show does not want to give VR much credit, so (laughs) let's let's be consistent. Back to the Obsidian Platinum plot. When Alex goes in and is is greeted with those ridiculous sets of options based on mind-reading tech, I'm truly, truly horrified by Kelly's line, Inside Obsidian Platinum, there are no rules. 
Yeah, that sounds a little scary. She seemed to be promoting it as a feature. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I guess it really depends on a person's imagination, doesn't it? I think that could be pretty scary if you let yourself get trapped into a bad mental loop. It is horrifying that the, the the controls in place for how this VR universe should work should at least make sense, but it's just so horribly, horribly broken. They give us a little line where Alex asks what an NPC is. I think maybe that's for future episodes or they just wanted to be able to tell the audience what an NPC is because she then goes and chats with someone serving lobster whom I'm assuming is not someone whose greatest desire in the world is to serve lobster at a party. I would think. I don't know who that was if it wasn't an NPC, but they knew where the escape room is because that's who you talk to to find out where something is as you talk to the NPCs. I don't know. The whole explanation of NPC scene was very out of place. Yeah, I suppose they had to put those lines in, um, but it would be surprising for someone as uh, tech-savvy as Alex, who also does regular game nights, even if they're board games, that she wouldn't have any idea what an NPC was. I expect it will matter more in a later episode, because now that we have Obsidian Platinum running, we're going to see more VR episodes. Yes. And I I expect that will come into play. Yes, I expect that very few VR episodes are going to be dragons and and, uh, women warriors fighting them, though, as we had at the beginning of the previous episode. I think most of our VR experiences, it's going to be like... uh, Dwight Schrute from The Office, where, you know, his uh, fantasy life is that he's exactly like himself, except he can fly. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I'm assuming every time we go into VR, it's going to be a horror fest, because that's what this product seems built to do. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Oh, one thing that puzzled me, when Alex found the room with all the people drowning in tanks of water, they said that Richard was their friend and he had basically lured them into this place and then trapped them. Who are these other people, and why did he trap them there? Were they test runs before he went up against Trevor? No, I'm pretty confident that they are his gaming group. So when we saw John going with Al to visit Trevor's room to look at his computer, John said that he had found two of the usernames of the people Trevor play with. And we also get that great line where Al is so happy about the watch that his brother had until he said that Trevor switched to a smartwatch. The horror. (laughs) In that scene, we got John telling us that there were two other people in the gaming group other than Richard. So this is clearly Trevor's online gaming team. They all went, all four of them, into this room at the same time. Okay. Trevor and Richard moved on to the next room, and then Richard locked those two there ever since. Okay, okay, thanks for explaining that. The part I don't understand about the scene, though, of course, is we see Alex, and this is a fear of Alex being drowned in a container, but she's not the only user in the room. Why are these other two people being inflicted to Alex's worst fear? Maybe that's how Alex's mind interprets whatever tortures they are actually going through. Ooh. That's a nice bit of headcanon. Yeah, I don't know. That's possible. That Everyone is could be seeing different things from their experience. So that's, that's possible. But it, it just seemed a little uh, Alex-centric for a moment there. Yes. During this period, Kelly notes that, well, if they're stuck and they can't get out, they could suffer brain damage. 
because this is such a dangerous product and should never be being used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's an especially dopey thing because I'm sure lots of people could be so fascinated by whatever is going on in the virtual world that they could just, you know, stay there without even being trapped and be suffering at least mild brain damage without ever realizing it and then just staying and staying. And apparently that's not even on the uh, product warning, <laughs> if there is any. <laughs> there are only two ways out, saying that you want to end the simulation or pressing the button. But if you don't do either of those things, we're fine with your brain slowly being melted away. <laughs> right. There's no automatic timeout. There's no little thing that says, you have now been in virtual reality for four hours. Why don't you get off the couch? <laughs> it's no surprise to our listeners that David and I see lots of problems with this product. <laughs> On the other hand, they solved the nutrition problem, apparently, because maybe they were supplying nutrition for two weeks to Trevor and his uh, group. Yes, but your body needs to do more than intake food. Yeah. To stay healthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how all this interferes with your sleep patterns and, you know, can you sleep in VR and is it as refreshing as real sleep? But would you ever actually go to sleep in VR since your mind is just being constantly stimulated? I'm pretty sure being exploded every few minutes will keep you up. <laughs> Right, right. Well, that, that's an outlier case. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We see John in the real world tracking down um, Richard and Jennifer's house, even though I still don't actually understand why Trevor's watch would lead him to Richard and Jennifer's house. He's never been there. They've never met in real life. It was just harmless fun, according to Jennifer. The, the PI work there was a little confusing, but it pushed the plot forward. Yeah, I, I think we'll just have to glide on past that moment. <laughs> and clearly we're being told that Jennifer and Richard, as a couple, clearly need to improve their communication skills. Well, they're not going to have much chance to do that in the near future. Nope. <laughs> I did like at the end that uh, Trevor tracked down Alex and wanted to thank her and have a drink with her and, you know, have a conversation with Kelly. Uh, it just seemed nice that there was a little more connection there. And of course, we also got to see that, hey, Trevor is okay again. Yeah, that was nice to see. I doubt he'll be a recurring character, though. Uh, almost certainly not. Um, like in other Supergirl episodes, the solution is give a good pep talk. Alex gives a good pep talk for Trevor to help defeat the programming, which, sure. Sure, she's had her own experience with pep talks and being a leader and everything. So, um... It was fine. She talked him down and managed to get him to calm himself down enough that he didn't keep exploding. So that was fine. I'm. I, it would be. It would be grim if, or dull at least, if uh, Kara were the only one who were ever allowed to give inspiring speeches or motivational speeches. Well, Alex has learned from the best, kind of. <laughs> also at the bar, we do see Alex and Kelly actually having the conversation as what doing things in virtual reality means. Kelly gives the a kind of flippant line, there are a lot of open questions about ethics and morality in the virtual world. Oh, Kelly. Yes. Yes, indeed there are. But it's good to see Alex laying down concrete ground rules like, you know, 
virtually dating other people is cheating. <laughs> it's good to have that clear. <laughs> and torturing people is attempted murder. <laughs> but I would have liked to have seen a line saying, my company is doing some weird things here. Uh, it would have been nice to see a little more of a, a question here at Kelly as she spent the entire episode with a product failing and almost killing people. They're clearly... She better have a good conversation with Andrea in the next few episodes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She certainly needs to do that. It's a little disappointing <laughs> that none of these questions apparently have arisen before for Kelly. But I guess she just focuses on her own specialty of psychiatry through VR. And it's just kind of baffling that she doesn't think about other consequences, though. Well, this is the season plot, so it's just being stretched a bit out. She will get there, I'm very confident. Probably even before Andrea and uh, Lena. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yes, I think we can count on that. I think that's about all I had on that plot line. Do you want to move on to the other? I wouldn't call it the B-plot. I, I think the VR thing was the B-plot for this time around, and the trans attacker plot is the a plot would you agree i would agree to the point where i still wish they were in two different episodes yes but yes let's move on to the much harder and uh, more important story right okay part of this episode is about people who are not trans and are kind of blind to some of the issues that trans people face being confronted with the reality and learning more about that and for that respect, I thought they handled it pretty well. Kara and William just didn't know much about the issues before, and they do some research and are stunned to realize the extent of violence against trans people in daily life, let alone this super plot. It's hard, though, because we get about four scenes with Kara, and the first two are really kind of clunky when it's Kara talking, and some of that is, I think the show wants us to see that Kara is blinded and not aware and is just trying to understand, and there's some progress in the later scenes where, where they're less clunky and Kara is supportive. So it, it showed a, a progress arc for Kara, it's just I'm not sure if I cared that much about Kara in this plotline, because... She was effectively there as Jiminy Cricket to not have Nia kill the guy. Right. And, of course, that was important uh, to have her not kill him. One can certainly understand Nia's anger and heartbreak over the situation. I was disturbed that she only gave the police a few hours to solve the problem before she went in vigilante herself using herself as bait to catch the attacker, you know, that's her choice. But I understand that it was a one-hour episode and they wanted to resolve it within an hour, so we couldn't wait for an actual police procedural that would take probably days at least to track somebody down. And really, this person was very little of a threat to Dreamer and Kara personally, though he is a horrible threat to the community. It is fair that Nia and Kara would just try and deal with it, even if it is a far too normal problem that they're trying to fight against. Right. The attacker made it a not-mundane problem when he decided that he was so offended by a trans person being treated as a superhero and being a superhero, that he was going to attack people as a way to 
try to force her out of her role and her identity. I almost am surprised they painted the cops in such a good light. If they needed this to move quickly and to Tremor to make that call, I am surprised they didn't have uh, the cops do what cops have done in our world, which is basically brush off and throw these types of attacks under the carpet. Right. William Day mentioned briefly that a lot of attacks against trans people get misclassified or, you know, not mentioned at all as what they are without being brought up as a hate crime. So that was lightly brushed on. Maybe, as you say, there just wasn't time to have a non-sympathetic cop. Maybe they feel like the show does enough (laughs) sidelining of cops (laughs) that they didn't need to make this one a baddie as well as, you know, not fast enough to satisfy Nia. It it hurt the plot, and it would have, I think, been more representative of some of the difficulties that the community's facing to have the police officer be less sympathetic and more dismissive to the attack. And had they done that, it's true, they would have painted the cop in a poorer light, but it, I think, would have made more sense to the plot, and it would have been possibly more realistic. Yeah. I think it was a mistake. Yeah, I'm a little torn because, in a way, it seems like it would have been better to stretch out this episode uh, and give it more of a multi-episode arc. Um, But at the same time, if they did that, it almost certainly would not be the A-plot of any episode. It would just be, you know, an occasional thing. And I did like that it was kind of the center of this episode, but you have to have the trade-off of compression then. So maybe they thought that the one hate group and his hate group buddies was enough. But that is a very incomplete picture of reality when, as Nia said, you know, her trans community is the one group that gets her. And a lot of people either don't care or actively dislike her group. And I mean, she said it, but it wasn't really shown to us. Because most of the people she was encountering were trying to help in whatever clumsy way they could. And it did give us this episode, and all of the scenes with Nia and Yvette in this episode are just amazingly well-performed and so well done. Yes. That I think the episode will hold together because basically it's being held up by them because they do such a good job. Yeah, if the writers spent all their time polishing those scenes and getting them perfect and, you know, thus spent a little less time fleshing out the cop character and leaving Kara pretty awkward, I'm fine with that, I think. If that's what they did, then they had the right priority. Because as you say, those scenes were really good. Yeah, absolutely. The time and the priority was put in the right place. Mm -hmm. A lot of this is also in parallel with Nia being sad about Brainy dumping her. Mm -hmm. As Yvette described, her weird little man. Yes. (laughs) Yvette drags out Nia to the club at the beginning of the episode because she doesn't want Nia to keep moping over that weird little man. I think think that's the phrase she uses, yeah. (laughs) Fearing Nia will have a permanent mope face. (laughs) Right, and Brainy, when Kara calls him for help in tracking down the bigot attacker, well, it's it's awkward. He's kind of cold, but okay, I will help on this. It's as if he's sunken more into his computer logical place because he doesn't want to have to deal with his feelings about betrayal and and lying and stuff. And so he almost has to be 
drawn out of that lethargy to help on this case. I don't think he was resisting helping, but I definitely think he was trying to dig deeper. Like initially he responds almost emotionally in how horrible it is. And then he does a double take and pulls back mm-hmm. and, and reacts in a less emotional way. He does seem to be basically just trying to hide his feelings, but they're certainly still there. And he certainly was going to help. Yeah, it's just, it seemed to me almost like he's um he's really deep into his undercover stuff for Lex. And it seemed to me like he, it just took him a little while to get back on track with helping his friends. The part I didn't understand with Brainy was he's doing research and an agent comes up to him with additional information about research about trans hate groups and he hides his monitor from them as if he was doing something wrong. And I was a little confused in the staging of that. Like, it's perfectly reasonable that the DEO is using their resources to protect Dreamer. I don't assume Dreamer's technically an employee. It's impossible to tell who's an employee of the DEO. They don't seem to sweat that line too hard. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's perfectly reasonable that the DEO would be helping. So I wasn't quite sure why Brainy was sort of trying to be secretive about his research. Um, I think he had a picture of Nia up there. Maybe people, maybe he was afraid people would realize he's still in love with her or something. I don't know. Yeah, it did seem a little awkward and he snapped at her. Almost. Well, not quite snapped at her, but he was very brusque. And when she gave him the research, yeah, it almost seemed like he was being territorial about it. It was a bit strange, but really the whole thing of why Brainy needed to break up with Nia in the first place is still weak at best. Yeah, and then at the end of the episode, when he handed over that research to the cop and said, oh, by the way, while we were doing this, we found out a bunch of other leads about haters and people who may have carried through on their threats. So here, here's a pile of research for you to go study some more cases. And the cop was kind of stunned and said, I don't know what to say. Kind of in a tone of voice saying, hey, this is great to get these clues, but also this is overwhelming. I don't know if there was a version of this where the cop was presented more negatively. Because yeah, it, it, it seemed like the cop barely responded in that scene. It was a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Well, he probably has a busy caseload to work on that are not cold cases. A few of those touches throughout the episode were a little off and it's hard to know whether they just didn't get enough writing time spent on them or whether we're supposed to read some clues into them as to what's going on. As a bleed into the anti-technology view, I don't think this storyline gives a good presentation of a product like Upswipes (laughs) using one's phone for uh, finding dates. It should at least be communicating the lesson to everyone, which is if you are going to meet someone for a date that you met on the internet, don't meet them in a dark alley downtown that probably smells like pee. Yeah. Sunset would have been a better idea than night also. (laughs) Just on a busy street. (laughs) Yeah. Anywhere but there. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was horrifying. In a club with your friend. Fine. Outside the club in an alley by yourself. No. Not a good idea. Don't do that. No one should do that. I wouldn't do that. Nope. Nope, nope. Oh, toward the end, right, there are speeches to Nia about, you know, continuing to be a symbol of hope for her community. But as you said, with the conversations between Nia and Yvette, I really liked at the end where Nia found Yvette 
deleting all her social media, and Yvette says, I should have done this a long time ago, I should have known better, a trans person of color is just a terrible risk, and Nia talks to her very sympathetically, but, you know, encourages her to not erase herself and to continue shining brightly and beautifully on social media, because that's how we show people who we are, um, that we have worth and value. So I thought that was good. Oh, that was easily the best scene in the entire show. Mm -hmm. We do see the fight, and the only thing I kind of liked from the fight, other than a faked reflection off of the truck mirror, which sort of zooms out impossibly, that was cute. But the only thing I quite liked about the fight is that this is not a fight to say, how are we going to win? This is, uh, what are we going to do after we win? <laughs> right. And I really quite enjoy that. It's this question of, does a superhero need to be having a fight where they are at risk and that they're always fighting people who are just more, more and more powerful? And this is a great example of that not being the problem. The real challenge is you have that power and you get to decide how you're going to use it against this horrible monster who they could just wipe off the earth. And they have to make that decision. And in that regards, I quite liked the fight that we see where Nia takes him down trivially, but then decides not to kill him. Yeah, well, I think the whole how do you address someone committing hate crimes as a superhero was addressed pretty well last season. I did have to laugh, though, when the guy realized that he had Dreamer, and so she was talking with him, and then uh, he pulled out his switchblade. <laughs> it's like, this is a legit superhero. Do you really think that just because you think she's a fake woman, that she's also a fake superhero? <laughs> and you're going to attack her with a knife? <laughs> I'm okay with them presenting this hateful jerk as an idiot. That's okay with me. Yes. Inconsistent thinking is uh, not mutually exclusive with being a bigot. In fact, it's often a feature. Yep. Yep. So anyway, with all the heaviness, that was actually just kind of a light moment where I was like, you idiot. <laughs> okay. So then at the very uh, end of the episode, uh, we got, well, not quite the very end. The very end was the Le Leviathan woman. Margot, I think is her name. Dealing with Richard. Anyway, uh, right before that, Elizabeth called Alex and told her that uh, their dad, Jeremiah, her husband, their dad, Jeremiah, has been found dead. And so I uh, actually had to look up the whole Jeremiah plotline because I forgot how it had been left. But anyway, Jeremiah was their dad who had disappeared, and then it turned out he was working for Cadmus, which was Lillian Luther's project. And he went in with the DEO, and then it turned out he was a double agent working for Cadmus, but he was forced <laughs> to work for Cadmus because they threatened his daughters if they didn't work for him. And then there was the whole thing with the um, spaceship that Lillian had acquired that they were planning to put all the aliens in and take them to the other side of the universe and let them go out there. Rich, uh, Jeremiah said, hey, uh, I actually made this plan better because Lillian wanted to just kill them all. And then Jeremiah disappeared. I think that's pretty much what happened with Jeremiah. Season 2, Episode 15, Exodus. And that sounded just as complicated and ridiculous as what I remember. <laughs> But that's pre-crisis. <laughs> <laughs> that was all pre-crisis. So 
Who knows what happened on this version of reality, if any of that happened. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have anything to stand on. So really, all we know in this reality is that their father, Jeremiah, was missing, and now he's dead. But I guess they'll tell us more next episode. Yeah, I expect we'll learn a lot of whatever differences there was between Earth Prime and Earth 38, Jeremiah, in the next episode. (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, although there were a few clunky moments in this episode, and uh, it's debatable how much it might have worked better if they had just focused on Dreamer's plot for this episode, it felt a bit compressed, but there were some really good moments in the episode, and it certainly kept me interested, and I'll be looking forward to finding out what happens next time. Yep, this was a great episode. It is a lesson to all, though, that never plug beta software into your brain. (laughs) Just don't do it. Let other people beta test it. (laughs) Wow. Okay, well, we hope that everyone stays safe while they pursue whatever forms of virtual or real-life entertainment they can during these troubled times. If you want to continue the conversation with us about this episode, please let us know on Twitter at SG Supercast or on the Incomparables uh, Slack channels. We often hang out on TV uh, on the sub-channel there. And I'd like to thank the Incomparable for hosting us. And as always, thank you, David, for a good conversation. Happy to be here. And thanks to the listeners. Talk to you again later. Bye-bye.